This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by my book, Shame, and it is available at the best bookstores everywhere. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. With me today are my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, known the world over as Chasing Artwork, who has come through the apocalypse to be here, and also Laverne Kazursky, my um, co-conspirator on Underworld, uh, this year's best-selling graphic novel from our booths. But when did we first publish Underworld? 2015? 2015, yes. Yeah, an yeah. older book, but for some reason it's caught on. And I wanted to put Laverne, who is well-known in the comic book world as an award-winning colorist, uh, worked with, literally, name a person in comics, and you have Danny. worked with them. Yes, he has worked with them. Uh, thank you, Dan. <laughs> Producer Dan from the Wings. Um, and you get asked about that a lot, but you are also a writer. Damn fine writer. I'd like to think I am. Uh, Shame, Necromantic, and Underworld, all out from Renegade Arts Entertainment. And Victorian from Penny Farthing Press, and uh, Tarzan uh, at Dark Horse, and uh, I've worked on Star Wars Tales, or Tales of Star Wars. I can't remember which way that goes. And uh, let's see, wrote a... Spider-Man story, a Wolverine story. Would have loved to have gotten into the regular books, but they were in the uh, anthology collections. So like just shorts. Like in the Marvel Age collections? Uh, in Marvel Black and White. Marvel Black and White. Oh, man. Those... Okay, so for many people who follow this podcast because they are comics curious or they are making comics themselves, um, let's not assume that anyone knows anything about how to write a comic. And let me just ask a question, <laughs> as if I don't know some of the answers for the sake of our dear listener. Um, how do I go about writing a Wolverine story for Marvel Comics? Um, well, in the case that I had, um, I, I actually was uh, talking to the artist first, and so we made a pitch to Marvel Black and White, and... Um, and they liked the pitch, and and so we got to uh, so I wrote the story and I went to the artist. Um, I want to take nothing for granted. Okay, pitch. If someone doesn't know what a pitch is, is this like hundred pages? Is this a phone call? Is this a massage in a back room? How's this pitch? It was a. Pitch work? It was a. Uh, I, I I very talented masseuse, but it wasn't. Uh, um, it was a phone call, and uh, I believe first it was the, the artist had talked to, to the editor, and the editor and I talked, and he said uh, that uh, you guys have got a Wolverine story for us, and, and he said, I don't want anything that's going to appear in the book. And I said, oh, this will definitely never appear in the book. It's, and it's kind of an insert story, but it's sort of like... Uh, imagine Wolverine as Little Red Riding Hood and that there are Maori dwarf ninjas that are are uh, are the wolf and he said I like that 
and off to the races. And then, then from that, I sent him the script, and he was, uh, he said, that was totally insane. So this is perfect. Had you written the script uh, Marvel style, full script? Um, I wrote it uh, Marvel style to show to the editor, but when it went to the artist, I I uh, fluffed it up. <laughs> okay, so let's not take anything for granted. If you're going to fluff up a script for a illustrator, what does that mean to you? I mean, you you've been in comics so long, you have a lot of shorthand, and you will compress the steps down into this is just what's done. But let's. Uh, I I talked to the the um, artist and I said, you don't get to show off enough, so we're going to do this three panels per page. And imagine it's uh, a wraparound screen at the old Grand Park Cinema. So each one is a movie screen, so three panels per page. And he said, wow. And I uh, wrote it up then, breaking it into three panels per page. So playing to the strength of the artist. Yeah. How important do you feel that is as a comics writer? Uh, I like to think that I write for my artists. First, so, and then the and then the audience. So, and not the editor. No, you pitch the editor. You write for the artist. The editor. I think the that the editor. Um, most editors I've talked to, uh, they want an idea that they can love, and so yes, I have to. The idea has to be something that appeals to them. Otherwise, really, why would they print it? Uh, so, so that's what I'm doing with the idea and I tell them about how we're going to, if I get to tell them how we're going to build on that idea and talk about the artist's strengths and stuff that he had done before and maybe tell them remember the the Hulk story he did, it's going to be like, do you remember that sequence? And he'll go, oh, okay, or, or something like that. I'll give him some reference so that that Pardon me, that he can picture it. And what comes in uh, usually from the artist, the ed editor will go back and say, wow, that's so much more than I pictured. And I said, told you he was going to blow us away with it. And it's in, in most cases, uh, it's more than I expected from the artist, too. So as a writer who also undertakes the process on a probably daily basis of embellishing or adding storytelling with color to black and white art. Mm -hmm. Do you find it hard to pair those two things? Like to separate yourself as, okay, now I'm just words. It'll be the artist's job to do this. It'll be some other colorist's job to do this. Or do you get in there and give a lot of direction to those, to the rest of the creative team? Um, I, I, I'm, uh, uh, I actually hold back from sticking my nose in because I think that uh, I don't want to be, it's, it's, it's not my place. And, and if they come to me when we're talking about the color and we're looking at a, at a sequence and, um, and I'm looking at the sequence and I'm going, you know, we could dress it up by doing this, that would help the storytelling. Uh, if I'm in a position where, like in some cases, um, the conversations are CCing the, the writer and the, the artist as well as the editor. So when we're all talking together like that and saying, 
and and the question is out for anyone to well did you think about this or where are we going with this because we're planning ahead or if we're reviewing stuff and and uh, then I'll I'll throw my two cents in in that but um, depending on who I'm working with like if I'm working with Craig he's 20 steps ahead of that already so I basically say uh, what do you want done in this and he'll say in this story there's the sequence and in that sequence I really have this uh, strong need or I see that it's red and I go okay so it's red but I know that doesn't mean that that I just do flat red panels <laughs> you know it, it means that that's the spectrum he sees it in right so but you try not to do that as a writer as a writer yeah um I try not to tell the colorist. Yeah, what to that's do. what I'm asking. Is like oh. I guess the, my my hidden question I'm trying to dig dirt on is oh, because you're so I good definitely at, stick my nose into the colors. Into the colors, you do. Okay, yes. But I don't do it until uh, I, if it's something important. I try and do it before because who wants to be in the position of having to rework your pages because the guy didn't tell you that that it wasn't that it was underwater or something. She must be unknown to man. A virgin, a sacrifice suitable for the Kraken. Necromantic from Renegade, Underworld from Renegade, and uh, Shame from Renegade, they could not in many ways be more different as books. Yeah. Tell us how that's possible to have so many different genres and kinds of stories. And maybe why don't you lay out what each book is in brief just to give the dear listener a chance to oh well figure they, it out. they're all sort of um, I guess when I'm talking about something like necromantic I, I I will explain it as this is kind of my James Bond except it's Jane and uh, and she is a powerful uh, medium and and it's called necromantic you know love of of the dead because um, I, I don't think it's a huge spoiler, but her boyfriend, her, the love of her life, is dead. But she can speak to the dead, so she continues her relationship in the midst of their James Bond-type adventures in that. Underworld was uh, originally I wrote as a, um, an exercise for my... Um, I had the opportunity... I had a, an assignment to write in screenwriting when, when I was at university. And I was also going through a um, uh, a complete mental breakdown, and my therapist uh, uh, was saying that it might be good for me to work things out in something like that. And I said, uh, "This is because I had talked to him about Mouse and told him about how Mouse started as therapy for for art, uh, and uh, and I was thinking of doing something like that." And, uh, and so um, the story of Underworld is about a guy who stumbles his way out of, out of the uh, Booth, Booth Building, Booth Center at uh, St. B, the psych ward. Uh, and, uh, and he's delusional and he thinks he's Odysseus lost in hell trying to find his way back to his family. And he wanders across Winnipeg and you know the Red River becomes the Styx, and uh, and uh, um, he bumps into Tiresias in a bar, <laughs> and and instead of 
blood offerings to get the the, the dead to speak. He has little red foil, red cellophane packets of cocaine that he's handing out, and he gets lots of conversations. Uh, so he so he goes through that, and and so yes, and if dear listener is not sure, I then illustrated this story. Also. Yes, so. after after making yeah. me do all kinds of uh, athletic contortions, yeah. so from, including Ditko poses, I, I seem to. That's remember. right. So before we jump into uh, shame, which is the another very different project, let's just take a moment and d- turn left. Okay. How many years was it from writing Underworld? to holding it as a finished project. Oh, oh wow. Uh, 30 years? So 30 years. And I can remember being at your studio space and you were pulling out these typewritten pages that were part of the first draft. And you're like, this is where it started and this is where I tried doing some illustration and this is where I did some xerography. And, this mm-hmm. is, and there was this long pedigree. And the whole time, I have to say, for the sake of the dear listener, Laverne's computer setup is such that when he would get an email, it would just float the subject line of the email over the screen, right? So that if he was busy doing something else, he would just just float by. So I'm there and some of my favorite comic book makers on earth are just emails floating past Laverne's thing. He's like, oh, Paul Pope wants you to do this. Oh, Neil Gaiman is asking you to do this. Oh, P. Craig Russell is, you know, and these are just floating. And I'm trying to stay totally focused and professional and not have a complete nerd freak out that Laverne is ignoring these emails which are landing now to go over, well, have you thought about maybe having the character do this next? Or have you looked at how the page will have more impact if we do this next? And I just, you know, as a person who was starting in comics, that meant a lot to me that I had your full attention while other people who were more worthy of it were there. So, uh... More than 30 years. How does it feel now that that book is behind you? Um, hmm. Well, I'm, I'm very happy that it's out. And uh, I'm uh, surprised that you were saying that it's selling more now than ever. Like, than before. Yeah, I had to reach out to Renegade and order some boxes of books. And, yeah. and you know, we had done that before, but... It kind of been a trickle. It'd been a book that always yeah. like was a steady seller, but mm-hmm. not a rush seller. And you know, I must have sold fifty copies of it in Calgary, without really even trying. And it's usually a book that people will find and you know come to on their own. But for some reason, at the Winnipeg show and at the Calgary show, people yeah. just love it. So a book has a time, and I wonder, right? I wonder if part of that, too, is because it's a Winnipeg-based story, people love when something's local. It hits a bit harder, right? This is a homegrown story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people yeah. from Calgary, people from Winnipeg, a little more into that. Do you think it'd do as well if you were in Chicago or New York? Yeah, weird. I don't know. I'd like to see now. Um, but I also think that the stigmas related to speaking about mental illness, having a character that, that is prevalent in the plot in 2015 that was still really the tip of the iceberg it wasn't a done thing to have that be normal and now we've yeah. lived with more of that transparency and i feel like that really is resonating with people and when they flip through it and they say why is a cyclops in downtown winnipeg and what's happening and i explain well you know here's the character and this is what he's suffering and there's a mental breakdown and they're like oh it's not a I don't want to read about a character who isn't perfect. Yeah. It's the reverse now. People want 
those flaws front and center, and I just feel like it's really... It's, it's true. Before that, it was uh, the people that were noticing were the people who knew who Polyphemus was. Right. But now it's people that are more interested in the, the, the flip side, the reality of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely true. And it's interesting because young people will say, oh, it's Greek mythology. I like Greek mythology. Yeah. And then they'll flip through it and they'll say, oh, this, there's, what else is happening in here? Because they see the cover and they mm -hmm. are immediately attracted to the big Greek warrior on yep. the cover and they miss the sort of darkened silhouette at first. And others that, who are a little bit maybe um, have a little more gray in their beard like you and I, Laverne, mm -hmm. they notice the shadowy figure first. Yeah. And they say, well, what's really going on in this story? It is time for chance to intervene. Time you saw something of the world, Perseus. Time you came face to face with fear. Tell me about shame, and more specifically, how'd you get bolted when no one else can get bolted? I wrote a story he loves. I've heard from so many other people in comics who are like tangential. They're like, you work with Laverne, right? Yeah. How did he get Bolton to do Shame? And why does he turn down every other book so that he can do more Shame? Because he loves the story. So tell us the story. Uh, uh, when I came up with the story, it was on a uh, it was on a honeymoon with my second wife, who is an ex now to be. Uh, what's the word? It, painfully transparent. That's right. In the issue of full disclosure. Yes, um, but. Uh, we were we were driving out in the country, no radio around, and uh, so I was. I think she just said, "Tell me." A, so tell me a story. <laughs> Pardon me. And uh, I started to tell her um, Wally Wood's story, "The Curse." And as I was, you know, trying to remember the curse, this this other story is running in there, and I'm thinking. Oh, well, she has some problems with her sister and her mother. She might relate to that because that's kind of the way this goes together. And so I made up this story and told her the whole, the, the story, you know, storyteller style. And she was like, wow, is that a book? And I said, uh, no, I just made it up. And she was like, you have to write that down. And I said, it's in my head. I'm not going to forget it. <laughs> only that works. Last yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and the next morning when I got up for breakfast, she made me a, a, my favorite breakfast, and beside it there was a writing pad and a pen. And she said, and now you write that down. So I wrote it down. And um, as I was writing it, uh, the images that were popping into my head were a lot of the th pieces that uh, that Bolton had done on his uh, adaptation of uh, Christina Rossetti's story, um, uh, what was it, Goblin Market or something like that. Okay. And uh, um, and the paintings from that are gorgeous. Uh, it was in Epic magazine? In Epic. So uh, maybe I'm confusing it with the one he did with Chris Claremont. He did a dragon slayer. Yeah, he did, he did the black dragon with black Chris. Dragon, but plus he did Marotta. Yeah, him. so I might be conflating those as I'm imagining. Yeah, they're yeah. very different. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I like that stuff. And so I had him, like, he was the shadow over me while I was doing that. And I wrote it up. And now and, you hadn't spoken yeah. to him. You were just, no. this was just in your mind yeah. as a cloud of imagery. All right. And for those of you who don't know, 
Bolton's work. Google Shame Bolton Kazersky. You'll see your mind will be blown at the just level of artistic. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And and he only keeps getting better. Uh, the pages that I'm getting emailed now, the proofs that that he's doing are. How many volumes amazing. so far of this story? Uh, what is it? Five. Uh, yeah, five, and there's uh, four more to go. Because you did a trilogy, the Shame Trilogy. It's going to be three trilogies. Three trilogies. Yeah. Have you? You're not familiar with this work, I don't think, Justin. Later, you will wonder why he worked with me. If he could work with people like <laughs> Mr. Bolton. Um, why don't you, for the sake of the listener, tell the story? I know the story, but I think it's good to have on record how you came to have all three of these books out from Renegade Art and Renegade Arts Entertainment. We'll edit around that so it's, I sound eloquent. Um, a publisher we've mentioned many times with glowing uh, sincerity on this podcast for simply being one of the few honest publishers you can find in oh, comics. He's a, uh, I think the term is mensch. Yeah. Yes. A unicorn, maybe? Maybe a unicorn. Uh, in some people's books, I would think so, sure. Yeah. So tell us how you came to work with this publisher. Um, it was uh, um, being hired as a colorist. And, uh, um, and uh, uh, the artist uh, recommended me as the colorist and... Uh, he had a, another artist friend in England who I was talking uh, to uh, about something at that point who said, um, you, really, you really should uh, talk to the, the renegade arts people. Alexander Finbo's a great guy and all that. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I should think about pitching them and that. But Alexander contacted me about working on, uh, on a book with William Simpson and, Game um, of Thrones. Yeah, Game of Thrones. He, uh, he storyboard did, artist, right? Uh, storyboard and concept. Right. Um, and uh, um, so I said, Duh, I, of course, I'd love to work with Will. His, his stuff's amazing, and I haven't had a chance to work with him. And he said, well, it's some different stuff in that. And he, uh, he sent me a, a copy of a book that he had already done with Will. And it was based on a film that he had, had uh, made because Alexander's background is film. And, um, and I, I was into it. We were talking about how to do it. He wanted it more painterly. And then, um, and then he... Uh, I, and you know what? I'm not sure if he brought it up or if I did. I think I may have because uh, an art, another artist that was working with him you know, as I said, had said to talk to him. So I said, uh, "Are you looking at any of the properties or something like that?" And and he said, he was like, uh, um, he was like, "Oh dear, it's another it's another artist who wants to be a, a writer." But he he had no idea that I'd written anything. Right. So he was like, "Well, I have to be polite," and you know, because I'm going to work with the guy. Is that you guys were on your way? Maybe this is an incorrect story, but the way I heard it is you were on your way to Friesen's to do a color proofing. They were doing a print proof. Is that true? And then you guys were in the car together. We were in the car together, but we weren't on our way to Friesen's. He he, he was in the city, and uh, we were we, he was uh, out because he was also meeting with a couple of other artists and that. 
And so um, we had gone out for dinner or something, and uh, I said, uh, I should show you around the city. And I think we were driving down Wellington Crescent. And and I said, you know, are you, are you looking for other stuff? And he was like, well, you know, we're always looking, but... You know. <laughs> Politely. Yeah. And and then I and I said uh, that I had a story that John Bolton and I would like to do, and um, and he said, oh yeah, and 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 I told him I said it's it's kind of grew out of that saying about you know careful what you wish for, and uh, and he said oh yeah, and so he was like when I said that to him he was already well that's really uh, the hook. And he wanted me to explain more, and I told him, you know, it's about a, uh, this uh, most pure woman in the world making a selfish wish, opening herself up for hell, for the for a demon to grant the wish, and through her uh, come into our world and that. And and he was like, okay, he he was like. He could. He was already seeing images of what John would do, do with it, and he was like, "That's brilliant." And so, you know, we went forward from that. His name is Bubo. Do you understand all those clicks and wheezes? Perfectly clear to me. It's another gift from the gods. Did you ever entertain thoughts of another artist doing that book? Um, no. No, because I, uh, when I first did it, I I uh, called John. This was back when you had when I had to get up at, I think I was up at six o'clock in the morning to phone John to get him in his studio, and I had met him briefly at, at uh, San Diego the summer before, and and so I had his his card and uh, and um, I I probably talked to his wife more than than him because he was, I think I came up when he was in a panel, and so I was waiting around for him and, and just chatting with her and looking at his stuff. But I had his number, so I called him and explained who I was, and he was like, so why are you calling me? <laughs> and, and I said, because I would like you to, to paint a story that, that, I've, uh, that I've written, and we would like to, to I, you know, I think we could probably get Vertigo to do it or somebody. And he was like... Oh yeah, <laughs> was another. How many calls must he get? They're like, I have a great idea for a story. Uh, well, he's very careful about who gets his his cards and that, and and I got it because I was uh, a working professional of of some repute, and uh, and so uh, we were talking, and he had I infamous, think, if not famous. Right? <laughs> well, he was interested in me coloring Black Dragon because right. uh, it was. They were doing to, a reissue of it. Right? It was going to be reissued, yeah, and uh, and so we we uh, talked. I told him the story and he went oh he said I'm feeling like like um, like this could be my gast. he said I love this story and, uh, and at that point there was nobody else that was going to paint it his work is so laborious mm -hmm. and it also doesn't require a colorist <laughs> tell us about your relationship with those pages when they come in oh there's goose I'm, it's Christmas every time uh, a page comes in. Do you ever find yourself wanting to whisper color theory to him, or is he? No. He seems beyond reproach when it comes to that. Uh, it's 
No, oh no, he would be open yeah. in that if I was talking to him uh, before he painted it in that. But uh, but there's no need. There's nothing that I can say in that. Like the only kind of thing that we might discuss when he sends me the breakdowns is um, is if I have a, a thing in mind for the magic. Like is is this person's magic? Uh, green and that person's blue or you know is that something you thought about and I said no that's that's yours and he's he's more than happy to to uh, take ownership so in your we're going to pivot a little bit in your relationship as a colorist for Marvel DC Dark Horse IDW I mean every company probably yeah been around you've done some work for you get to see scripts yes you get to see finished artwork. Mm-hmm. You get to see people stumble between those two steps. How much does that inform you as a writer? And how much does it... For me, I feel like it would make me nervous as a writer to see all the constituent parts all the time. Um, I think the, the script that had the, the biggest influence on me was, uh, was the first Alan Moore script that I had to work with on a, a Batman annual. And and it was, um, I think it was a 38-page story, something like that. And uh, the, uh, the script was um, 40-some pages uh, typed, single-spaced. And, uh, and then, and I had been right I had written up some screenplays for for my classes and that and when I looked at what he was doing I was looking at it and going okay well there's no room in here for for the art director or the director or any because it's all done and so I, I realized that that what I should be doing is all of those jobs when I'm writing the uh, writing the stuff out for the artist so that um, so that he knows the, the you know the perfect description of this room, whether he's only going to show one wall of it or not, that's up to him. But he should know that that it wraps around and there's bookshelves there as well as there, and that the couch is against the wall there. So if he shows that image, maybe he's just deciding that the the bookshelves would be too busy for what he wants to say, or. He knows that it would take him three days to draw that, so he's got to cut it down to one. So that's his decision to make from all the information that's there. Okay, I'm going to put Justin on the spot here now. He is undertaking a major graphic novel project that he's writing and illustrating right now. You've probably, you've made more mistakes than either Justin or I have made successes. Um, and so I'd be curious to know if you were going to give advice to someone who's like, okay, I don't need anybody. I'm going to do it all myself, right? And you've seen this happen many times. Yeah. What's that advice would you give to Justin? I want to hear Justin, like, respond to these oh. ideas. Um, I didn't know you were uh, working on, like, when, when you say major, are, you, are we talking about Yeah, tell pages? us. That. Are we allowed to talk about Spark yeah. Chasers at this point? Is this, yeah. like, too much? Of- yeah, so, yeah, I've started handing out uh, promotions for it. So it's a lot, we're allowed, okay. Yeah. You heard it here first, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So, yeah, this is, my last one was 
yeah, I think my first graphic novel was like 48, and then I got 72, and Dragon Ending was 104, and so I want a 200-page book. And I've worked on like every number in between 100 and 46 shorter stories and in between, but yeah, I want a 200-page epic. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm ready. And I've worked with enough other writers and illustrators and, and everything in between that, yeah, I feel like I can, I've, you know, I've, I feel like I have enough experience under my belt that I can do this myself. This is always, like, I always, uh, and I think we all get this, people who have never made comics before, the first comic they want to make is going to be a 200-page, six-part. They always bite off more than they can chew, right? yeah. Yeah, that's... This is not what you should start out with. You should start out with, you know, do four pages of comics or maybe, you know, 24 pages of comics. If you can do that, you know, then keep going. But so you think you're ready now? I think I'm ready. Yeah. How many shortcuts have you taken in the writing? Uh, because you're doing the art. Oh, great question. Well, yeah, so I am kind of... <laughs> Gotta tell the truth, Justin. <laughs> the, the art is really influencing the, like, the manuscript. So I, I wrote kind of the bare bones out. But never, I didn't really get into the writing. I wanted to get establish the art style and the flow of the page visually first, and then that will influence the manuscript. So I'm kind of going back and forth with when the the art comes first. The art is the strongest part, and that's going to feed the writing. Is kind of how I've been working. Well, I would say the story comes first. Yes, but I tell like I tell whether the story it, whether whether it's yeah whether it's a story in art or a yes. story in prose, it's yeah. the story. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that came first to you. Or did you say, I don't have a story yet, but I'm going to do this? I had a concept first. I okay, then that's yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you're, you're like, on the story has now. to, because I was thinking about that as we were talking about that earlier, about how you were saying, um, like, fitting the story with the artist. And as I've been, you know, doing more and more stories, I'm less thinking about what story do I want to tell. I'm thinking about what do I want to draw for... 50 plus pages like what kind of what kind of story fits with the art that gets me excited right now well sure I mean yeah. I'm, I'm that's what uh, John had to decide when we were first working up the story because uh, it's going to take him like nine years right so he had to look at that and go um, I love this enough to work on it for nine years right and and so you have to it has to be that's why when you were asking about what I'm writing I'm writing a story for the artist first. Right. Because he has to be able to uh, love it enough to work hard through the whole thing and still enjoy it. How may a mortal man face and defeat the Kraken? When you put that nine-year frame around it, I just realized, I don't know, aside from my wife, if I've loved anything enough to work on it for longer than nine years, (laughs) like, I don't know. That's amazing. I do, but like they're working on themselves now, you know. Like no, they're not. You know, they're still working on you. They're working on me. But what I what I mean is like, yeah, you know, you're a dad forever, but to like, okay, so Spark Chasers, two hundred plus pages in your mind. You're budgeting. I know you're pretty careful with that. Budgeting roughly how much time you think it'll take you in just raw drawing power. How long is that? It's going to be a year and a bit. I would say I'm like twenty twenty percent of the art is done. 75 to 80% of the manuscript is done. I'm aiming for around like around this time next year. I'm it's going to be like close. 
but that's like this is going to be my main focus. So did you storyboard out the whole thing? Not the whole thing. Um, it's not going to be 200 pages. <laughs> okay. So, okay, so there's it's two not. things I want to describe to the listener. The look on Laverne's face when Justin <laughs> said, no, I didn't storyboard it, and the look of pure clarity and wisdom that came across <laughs> you when you said it won't be 200 pages. Let's unpack that. So, so you, I think it's, it's a, about 170 pages now, but I know there's a bunch of stuff I'm going to keep adding. It's yeah. story, 170 pages are storyboarded. Okay. But there's... It's bare bones for, there's gonna be more. There's gonna be lots more. Yeah. As I'm developing the, the first bit, it's growing already. Right? Oh yeah, for what you're doing, mm -hmm. wonderful. It's like ideal. If you were doing that for a publisher though, you would be slowly going under. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the other thing that's come up with this is that there is, um, there might be an agent involved, there might be publishers involved and so I'm in the, the really lucky position where I get to, I have a plan for this book that I can do under my own company steam with my own distribution model that I don't really need any other help to make this a reality, to make yeah. this happen. But You're there, in a make me a better offer scenario. There, yeah, yeah. There is the possibility that this might get picked up, but it has to be a really great offer for me to actually go for it because I have the backup of this is going to happen one way or another. Well, yeah, because yeah. you can hear the sound of of the uh, of the handcuffs being clicked onto your wrists it, once right? you yeah, sign the deal. Maybe we can cut this part. Oh, this doesn't. Maybe change this. Maybe you know, yeah. like. Oh no, it's great. <laughs> we love it. And remember, we talked about March, but we think February is way better. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, "Oh crap! I was hoping to go for an extra month, not cut two. That and because Martin, because, because when because when you're working with any publisher, the whip that that drives that uh, carriage is marketing, mm -hmm. and if marketing says we know this product, we've been talking it around and that, and its time is now. Right. Um, I've I've worked on products that I was told I had three months to work on, and then I got one. Yeah. How do you deal with that professionally? What is, uh, what's some advice you can give to us who are, are getting into those deep thickets and thorny bushes right now? What's that medication for diarrhea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's, all, that's all you can do. No, I, I, uh, there's nothing you can do but, uh, but have a uh, really strong support, uh, whether it's a studio or whether it's a virtual studio. And, and um, you have to have people you can work with that you trust that can, I don't know, just do sketch-ups for you to work from or ink your backgrounds for you or, or, or in some cases, uh, books that I've worked on where I knew that I couldn't paint it in time because marketing had moved up the, the deadline. So I would have four guys that are uh, a couple of women that I knew that if I gave them a pencil crayon uh, uh, marked up um, photo uh, pardon me like photocopy a, like a so I could take yeah. a photocopy and do a, my my style pencil crayon guide that they knew my language well enough so that I could give it to them and they would paint it as well as I could uh, some of them probably even better and then 
then you have to do that because once that deadline is set, there's so much machinery that's in gear in that that it'll just, you know, it'll grind you up. Can I? And yes, I have worked for 74 hours at the table <laughs> without a break. Gel diapers involved? Or? Nope. No. <laughs> no. No, but there was a sink in the next room. <laughs> um, how often, since we're on this subject of the the grand machine that is um, big two comic publishing, Marvel DC, um, I won't name names. I think you'll know the story, but you can decide to name names if you want to. <laughs> I was, again, this was during the Underworld uh, days, so I was in the studio, and you were getting... Uh, black and white line work from a uh, pretty high-profile artist at the time mm -hmm. that I was completely shocked to discover all the parts I liked in it when I saw it in print were actually illustrative elements that you had added to the finished artwork. That there was moments where it simply said, draw in a background or this looks like intestines, instead of a drawing of those things, which mm -hmm. is what the artist is supposed to provide. And how often does that happen in the realm of being a comics colorist on a tight deadline? I know it's kind of an all hands on deck it's, kind of scenario, right? It's not, it's not very often. And it's usually uh, because, because everybody wants to avoid that. So most of the time people are, are you know, the editor's trying to set it up so that the guy's got enough leads so that doesn't happen. But, um, you know, I, I remember working on a book and everything was great. We had so much time and the artist went over the handlebars of his bike when he was riding and broke his arm and everything changed. <laughs> I guess so. You know, so accidents happen and that. So that that's not the standard. That's really... Rare, right? So if you bust your unboxing, Justin, how is Spark Chasers going to get finished on time? I'm going to learn how to draw with my left hand real quick. Yeah, yeah. right. Frazetta so. did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're you're at least five percent of Frazetta. You could probably <laughs> you could probably pull it off. Yeah, you'll need this. A cat on a fatty man. As a writer in comics, I know we, we jumped into coloring a little bit. Let me just double check the time. Where are we at with time, Dan? Uh, go for the Okay, perfect. So let's imagine that, let's not imagine, let's just state for a fact. You've been involved in the comic book world for decades. You've seen ebbs, Since flows, 1986. 1986. So you've seen it all in the naked city, as they say. Mm -hmm. And not all advice for how to write for comics is uh, evergreen. So let's talk about right now. What are you seeing in the work in comics now that you think would be typified as how to, quote, break in to comics now? What is the kind of work that's getting through to editors, is getting on the shelf? Um, it's so wide open now, but... I seem to, I, I had a discussion with an, another uh, pro uh, recently, and we had this uh, disturbing little conversation that, that it seems that what uh, um, publishers are looking for right now 
that the more it looks like a comic, the less they want it. Interesting. Mm. Hmm. And and um, and they seem to be making decisions about uh, the look, you know, whether it's the artist or or the, you know the design of the book and that 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 if it looks like a comic, it's less attractive. And, and so the market seems to be really different now. Can you break down what you mean by comic? I mean by, uh, uh, by comic, let's say, um, uh, like a, a George Perez uh, Avengers book. Right. The more it looks like that, it seems the less they are interested in it. There are still some properties, um, you know, like uh, superhero stuff and that, uh, that they want, they want it to wear those clothes. Right. But uh, but I don't think that's where the um, where most of the new um, I guess editorial people what they want. They don't want it to look like that. So it's a good time for experimenting and good time for. Well, but but is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that was just, we're saying. Oh well, then you know it's wide open, so we can throw anything at it and just you know throw throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Well, but is it? Because it's there's a, a, a new aesthetic that it has to fit into, hmm. and so you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh well, I've got um, I don't know, uh, like. Uh, um, Who's the uh, you know pick the the A list guy at at DC right now? Whether it's Ivan Rice or, or Reese, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've right. just seen the word. Uh, so take him and and his uh, amazing superhero work and all that. Like, is he the going to be affected by that? And and in in that is is it they're going. Well, we've got a new Aquaman book, and he he's like brilliant for it, but is he really? Because they're looking at um, Rick and Morty, right? And they're going, Rick and Morty is Aquaman, yeah. And so suddenly, you're actually you're, I can see that. I probably read Aquaman if it looked like Rick and Morty. Oh, well, who, who wouldn't? Yeah, kind of reminds you of like the Peter Porker kind of right. Like as a kid, that was so interesting to me like it was spider-man but like cartoony and fun and yeah yeah like just a different yeah different stuff but but then when you when you're sitting there and you're pitching aquaman and you've got ivan there yeah well maybe you're killing yourself by attaching someone who is such a uh comic book icon with his art and his look and so suddenly they're 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 you don't know that, though. You're looking at, because you're looking at what's happening, and you're not knowing where they're going. Mm-hmm. And, and also, the, the editorial people that are coming in, did they even read comics? Right. That's another thing I was going to ask you. Is in, I hear from lots of folks that I know who are industry pros that the editorial staff now at many of these companies didn't grow up reading comics. They're not, they weren't really interested in comics, but now they're overseeing whole lines of X-Men or Aquaman or Batman. How do you think that's 
impacting what we're getting. Yeah, that, that was my question. Yeah. I don't know how it is. See, we get great things like, is it uh, Greg Smallwood doing uh, Human Target, which is like um, Tales of the Human Target, I think is out now. And mm-hmm. the art is so different from the language of typical comics that I'm actually super excited and interested in it mm-hmm. in a way I wouldn't be if it was just, you know, comic book artist A, B, or C who is known for doing whatever covers on whatever cross promotion that month. Mm-hmm. So, um, hmm. then how as a writer, do you pitch if the flavor of the art, yeah, that eye roll, I wish we could have captured <laughs> on the microphone. How do you, how do you select what to suggest in your pitch to the editor? If that flavor is going to change? I think more and more pitching has become about, um, about popular culture so that when I'm uh, pitching something uh, like I said earlier about a necromantic being uh, being James Bond well I didn't I didn't have to choose James Bond I could have been talking about a comic book icon who is a spy right like I could have said Nick Fury right but average but, but, people but who yeah. knows who like because of the movies we know that that Samuel L. Jackson is Nick Fury right but I didn't grow up with Samuel L. Jackson yeah. being Nick Fury. With Steranko Furies, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Steranko uh, uh, followed uh, Kirby on, on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. So, um, so when I'm talking to somebody, I'm not going to say Nick Fury back when he was Caucasian because I've already lost the pitch. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to say James Bond or I'm going to, you know, pick some other character that's uh, more current and part of the um, the language on uh, um, on social media. Wow. See, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think about that too as I'm coming up with a new idea. Is how am I going to explain this to people? It's this meets that with a dash of this. Like the references that I'm going to use to tell you about it mm-hmm. is really important when you're formulating that idea and starting to tell people about it. Oh yeah, like when I was talking to John about the thing, and he said this this could be like my you know our or my Gorman guest. How many people are, like? Right, not too I, many people. I don't Some, say someone that right now is googling Gorman guest. Yeah, I don't. To out how yeah, to spell it. I don't say that yet. When I'm at uh, Dan is yeah. immediately googling Gorman guest. <laughs> when I'm at a convention, I kind of gauge who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. and if I'm talking to somebody that I think will know what Gorman guest is. I'll tell them that, but I, I wouldn't expect the kid who came up and and like I was I was really impressed by uh, um, a young girl who came up and picked up Underworld and was going through it and going Polyphemus and pointing out all this stuff and I was like wow I was impressed and he was and the father was beaming he <laughs> knows all that stuff because we were looking through you know I was like I would have been like that too, but that's unusual, huh. Wow. Well, I could talk to you about the um, constituent parts of writing probably all day. And we may when the microphones are off. But for now, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm Gregory Kamichek, encouraging you to join the fight and make comics.